Hello everyone, I'm Samantha Jane Smith. And I'm Jacob Keynes, and you are listening to the Classical Queer Podcast. Hello everyone, before the start of today's interview, Jacob and I would like to take a few moments to wish everyone a happy Christmas and a good new year. We hope that 2023 will be a better year, not only for the queer community, but for people everywhere. And we stand with everyone that fights against hatred, whatever form it takes. Now, Jacob and I will be back in February 2023 with another interview with yet another fantastic member of the classical queer community. See you next year. So today we are very, very thrilled to be uh, joined by four members of Opera Queens, uh, which is a Montreal, Toronto-based, uh, can I say collective? Is that a good word for, for We are actually a federally incorporated nonprofit organization, so formally, uh, but uh, we, you can call us an opera company. Fantastic. Opera company. Uh, that... Uh, does some wonderful queer opera. And so we're really excited to talk with everybody. Uh, as we usually do on the podcast, we'll go around and just kind of say a, a hello, a welcome, tell us about yourself. And we'll, we'll start chatting. Uh, maybe Mike, you want to start? Sure. I'm happy to begin. I am the, uh, I feel like uh, an accomplice or something. I'm the one who instigated this affair and have roped all these wonderful humans in. And I'm just glad that through all, all the craziness that uh, we're all here together, it feels very surreal. But uh, I'm the founder of Opera Queens. We were founded in the fall of 2020. A strange time to found an opera company doing so much stuff, but it just felt like the right time. And uh, I'm Mike Fan, friends with me. I use they pronouns. And I'm currently based in Toronto, in Takaronto, here in Canada. And at the time of founding Opera Queens, I was finishing my master's at McGill University. So that explains kind of our Montreal origins. And we still try to serve both the Montreal and Toronto scenes and have artists that reflect both. And because there's a lot of, it's pretty close geographically, and yet there is not as much cultural connection as I would like there to be. And uh, I also perform in drag as Tanya's Mania and uh, use she pronouns when I'm in drag. So that is one of the reasons why Opera Queens was kind of founded as an outlet for myself and other artists interested in gender bending and drag. And uh, I work in a lot of different disciplines in opera. I was a pianist once upon a time. I have a pre-med degree. I work in theater as well and do lots of ruckus. So in the end, it all kind of intersects and also are their own kind of separate little entities as well, too. And Upper Queens essentially was founded to really serve the queer trans community as well as the BIPOC community and or. And so we have even members today, I think, really beautifully represents what we do, where we have those who are queer trans. We have those that are BIPOC. We have those that are both. And so it's it's a, a melange. And uh, we leave the door open for this kind of identity to present itself and to be present, as I say, reflecting the full color, the full rainbow, just beyond queerness as well, too. Because as a person of color who's queer, it's definitely, you know, we want to have all those colors in the toolbox. And when we talk about queer trans narratives, especially, sometimes the literal color part, the melanated part, is not always part of the discussion. So it's, and we don't want to say necessarily now people who's who necessarily, everyone's at a different point in their journey, 
but it's just been really exciting um, to know that there are others like me out there and uh, accomplishing wonderful, fun, crazy things together. So great to be here. How wonderfully elegant. Very, very well put. Um, Christina, maybe you want to say hello. Hi, everybody. My name is Christina Yoon. I am a Korean-Canadian soprano question mark from Mississauga, Ontario, which is uh, just west of Toronto, aka the suburbs, if you have never been there. Um, the reason why I say question mark is that I started off as a mezzo, but nobody really knew. It was always just um, mezzo-soprano uh, for those who don't know anything about Fox at all, like F-A-C-H is what I said, um, <laughs> is that mezzo-soprano is kind of like the middle voice, right? Um, and so I was a choir singer for a long time. And then suddenly my voice went through puberty without me. So that's why I was a mezzo-soprano question mark for a very long time. And it also moved to soprano without me. Um, I was in denial for a very long time, I think two months uh, when I was doing my master's in San Francisco. Um, <laughs> and so my transition was uh, to soprano was very arduous. Um, but so even though I am somebody who identifies as straight, my pronouns are she, her, and therefore uh, cisgender in my case, um, I am a huge, 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 huge advocate for, uh, I say, the gay alphabet stories because I don't remember the order after a certain point and I don't want to get it wrong. Um, <laughs> so I support the entire gay alphabet. I want to lift it up with my shoulders and um, especially being fortunate to be in a community like San Francisco, like Toronto, like Montreal, where those the gay community and and beyond are just so rich and um, you know so supportive. But then once you step out of it, it's like people don't really know. And so I feel like um, one of something that I've talked about with Mike before is just the connecting the arts in general. It's like it's very tumultuous. It's changing as per we know the social climate with classical music and. Um, classical art in general is changing like they're trying to cater to us almost 30 year olds and beyond um we're like finally uh but you know and so tr uh, really having this vision of connecting these what are still considered marginalized communities with our classical art is a huge uh mission point of mine in my art in my community engagement and so when Mike contacted me a long time ago, <laughs> and we've known each other for a long time, to come join Opera Queens, it was obviously an immediate, let's do this. I'm going to say, uh, Jake, can you uh, give us an intro? Tell us who you are. Sure. Um, so I am, as I said, I'm in Montreal. I um, had a very kind of circuitous route to Opera Queens. I... Um, I did a doctorate at University of Miami in the like 2010s and then moved back to Montreal um, after directing a kids choir for a while, not too sure what I was going to do next, um, and started working in audio engineering and music perception in a, in a lab at McGill. And now I'm doing a PhD in psychoacoustics. But uh, the first thing I did was vocal performance as an undergrad. So even though I have moved from music into um, music perception and experimental psychology, I still love to sing. And I am also um, super queer and super brown. So 
super happy to be hooked up with Mike and company um, because I have going back to when I was doing my master's and my uh, DMA, I became really interested in in issues of like just the way women are treated in opera, um, the 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 way people's bodies are discussed in opera, the way you know there's a lot of fat shaming even to this day. I literally read an article about it yesterday and was horrified because um, all these singers were talking about their eating disorders, and that's what I did my thesis on back in the 2010s, and I thought that things were getting better, but I guess not. Um, and, you know, there was there have been so many singers, younger singers, because I'm obviously a bit older, who have talked to me about how hard it is, especially for women to come out as queer in, in opera. Um, people who have talked to me about the issues they've faced as um, BIPOC singers. Um, and just, you know, the there's a huge problem where um, women of color are often sort of fought as lower voices, even though um, their voices say soprano, but um, especially black women, like if you look at Jesse Norman, Shirley Verrett, Grace Bumbry, um, they're all Zwischenfachs. And hey, guess what? So am I. Um, so I, I started out as a coloratura soprano and was moved around all the time. Oh, something sounds strange. There's a darkness in your voice. You sound black, uh, whatever that means. Um, and now, um, actually this season, 2022-23, all of my roles are not just mezzo. They're like straight up contralto roles. And I'm like, whatever. Like, I'm one of the lucky ones who gets paid to sing. But um, I don't know. So I just I try not to sweat it too much and, and go where the wind blows me as far as that's concerned. But it's definitely um, a trend and has been for like decades, um, you know. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's my story. I um, I like to write music. I like to create sound. I like to do multimedia. Um, I like to do science. I like to do everything. And I have three bunnies and three kids. <laughs> oh, and I believe. I forgot. <laughs> Sorry, say that again. I just always forget they, them pronouns. I always forget my pronouns. <laughs> Bad non-binary person. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe, uh, I, just as I was looking everybody up before we, we started talking, I believe we're in the same program. Are you at Concordia in the indie program? I am. You too. I'm also doing the PhD in indie. Oh wow, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, What's and your... uh, queer music. <laughs> um, and so I have uh, a music person, and a it's it's kind of a queer music geography, um, urban planning, sonographies mix. Um, and so I have one music person at Concordia, but. Uh, the rest of them are non-musicians, which is really kind of funny as a as a musician. That's so cool. I have Eldad Savari and um, on my me too. YouTube. Yeah, isn't he the best? Love Eldad. Me too. Um, my main supervisor is in psychology in the hearing and cognition world, um, and then I have someone from psychoacoustics at UDM, Caroline Trobe, who's amazing. And um, yeah, so Mikhail Deroche is like super young and 
a professor in both um, psychology at Concordia and otolaryngology at McGill, um, which is Very really cool. cool for Yeah, and he works with like hearing impairment mainly and deafness. But um, one of his projects was on vocal issues that are that people with hearing impairments and deafness experience um, just because when you can't, I guess, when you're not getting auditory feedback, sometimes um, you pick up vocal habits that actually can lead to like long-term vocal problems or um, make it difficult for, for your hearing family to kind of understand your affect and things like that. So he was working on that and I got hooked up with him because of production questions like muscular stuff. And um, anyways, it's just really cool, but I'm actually working on um, gender perception and voice timbre. Very cool. Very, very cool. What a neat connect. It's it's a fun yeah. one. That's great. We should talk Concordia at some point. We'll, I would love that. And, we'll, and I love that Eldad's getting a shout out in, in this right. podcast. That's great. <laughs> we'll be very thrilled. Um, <laughs> Thera, let's see uh, what our microphone situation is, is feeling. Okay, I'm just getting a very, very big lag from you guys, but that's okay. I can deal with that. So many apologies for all the tech madness. I am actually sitting in the lobby of my building's gym, so, you know, it's, it's one of those days. Um, my name is Thera. Uh, Thera is in therapeutic, as I like to say. Um... I'm currently residing in uh, Toronto or Toronto, Ontario. Um, I, it's so interesting listening to everybody else sort of speak about their experiences because there's so many parallels between, I think, so many of our paths that we've taken. So um, I also did my undergrad degree at Wilfrid Laurier where I met uh, Christina and Mike. Oh, I should mention my pronouns are she, her. I, I mean, they're obviously my name, but nobody is reading the podcast. That's not a thing. Um, anyway, did my undergrad at Laurier and then did my master's at the University of British Columbia, which was interesting. Um, then I did my artist diploma um, at the Glen Gould School here in Toronto. Um, and this is where I find myself now. So uh, I, I had an interesting, I think we've all sort of had interesting vocal journeys. I'm also I mean, I'm a coloratura soprano now, allegedly, but um, I was in weird mezzo land for two years, which was just not right. Um, I think we figured it out now, but um, I, I think along with the, the vocal struggles, um, I should also mention that I'm half Sri Lankan, and uh, it's, it's a very interesting career when half the time that you're working with new people or being in a new production or or going to different places and whatnot, people are asking you where you're from from. Love that experience. Um, and while I know that I, I look pretty white passing and I certainly don't, well, according to other people, don't look Sri Lankan, um, that also has its own set of challenges because people want to sort of tell you where you're from. And um, that kind of isolation or um, feelings of sort of non-belonging uh, sort of amplified in an artistic community can be can be especially isolating because I feel like artists themselves are people who kind of want to find their own their own group and creatives like us often feel just in general that we don't belong and then we 
we strive to find belonging in our art. And then when we can't do that because of perceived differences that other people have of us, it's extremely lonely and it's, it's isolating, it's debilitating. And um, it's companies like opera queens that bring these more marginalized demographics together and make safe spaces actually safe. <laughs> Cause how many times have we heard, Oh, this is a safe space from somebody who doesn't really understand what that means. Um, and then it turns out that it's, it's not, um, anyway, I'm just really excited to continue my work, um, with opera Queens. I'm also, um, on the board of directors. I'm also acting as a secretary, um, for opera Queens and really happy to be exploring uh, my journey with, um, a lot of like-minded people. I identify as, um, straight and cisgender, but that being said, kind of like Christina with, you know, supporting the, the entire alphabet. <laughs> That's also really, really important to, to me as well, because I mean, so many people who work in our industry are LGBTQ plus and you want to support your friends. You want to support your colleagues. You want to learn how to be a better ally, um, and really work on, on, what it really means to have a, a space that is truly safe and inclusive for everybody. So that's my spiel. Wonderful. Thank you. I mean, maybe my first question uh, for everybody is the most obvious one. Um, and I'm sure uh, anybody who uh, works with Opera Queens gets this all the time, but opera is such a uh, narrow, white, classical, uh, non-queer not well very very queer but not presenting as uh queer on paper necessarily uh way of making art and music and i wonder uh i mean probably knowing what a lot of people are going to say but this is the important thing like what does opera queens mean to you as performers then that you get to um not to put words in anybody's mouth but like subvert all that to to uh, encounter opera from this perspective uh, that is so uh, wonderful and queer and diverse. Well, I'll quote a review that we had from our Shotani Secret in August that I really love from Opera Rambling's blog. And it was something that uh, articulated very well that it was surprisingly unsurprising, which is exactly what I didn't realize what I hoped I would accomplish. But, um, you know, when I present on my CV or I say that I do, you know, opera and drag, people are like, really like, wow, it seems like so revolutionary because, you know, opera it has such a stodgy elitist, you know, uh, connotation still. And then, you know, drag brings in this kind of whole seem seeming like like uh disjointed other uh you know subversive thing which of course you know is also what we hope but you know carabino is one of the most performed roles orlovsky there's so many pants roles for mezzo and no one questions it the whole thing that we're trying to really pull apart is that it exists already in the art form and it is such an overdramatic campy art form what else is more gay than that but you know it's just really actually doing what is not often done because i think a lot of us as we kind of introduced it felt really honestly like as opera queens often seems like a support group for us marginalized folks um it really is kind of a form of therapy and a kind of a form of reckoning with this art form because so often things are done in certain spaces for certain people but not others our whole point is to bring the rest of the rainbow back in, you know, so drag, but, you know, for example, I sing Carmen and Tatiana, it's like, 
why not? If a mezzo gets to sing Carabino and Octavian, uh, why not? And, you know, for, for some of the others of us, we haven't been seen people of color, especially in certain roles and repertoire, you know, and uh, as an Asian, I'm not going to just sing, you know, uh, Butterfly. I'm not just going to sing, you know, Kalaf and Turandot. Uh, you know, how many Asian Carmens have we had? And why are so many of those mezzos singing Suzuki, right? There's just so many things where it's really just actually seems revolutionary, but really it's just ca catching up to where all the other art forms are, film, music, theater, and all sorts of other media where it's happening. It's just opera often move very slowly. So uh, surprisingly, I've really found things have moved very quickly for us. We've gotten a lot of support and granting, um, not as many tomatoes as I thought, because I think we're at a point finally where this is starting to be normalized and started to really be accepted after many centuries of it not being so. And it, it really is the time because a lot of us has just been waiting out there for it to happen. The other key component is, you know, commissioning new work, which we we've done and continue to do. I always thought it would be something really down the line, but we've been really fortunate to have really creative composers linked with us very early on. And I think Jay, after all of the amazing things you mentioned in your uh, bio, I think you also actually forgot to say that you compose, or maybe I, I forgot to mention it, but Jay also is an incredible composer, and uh, we have a commission, our first Opera Queen's commission for them, uh, which has already actually seen some light, but will continue to be developed next year. So it's really thrilling also just creating new work, new work that needs to speak, and that's another part of the conversation too, because as much as we love the canon there, and we can do things with it, it is limited in some ways because, you know, for example, me as a queer Asian, non-binary Asian who does drag, where are my roles, where's my repertoire? It's a story that exists, but something that hasn't really gone into opera. And so many of us, as we've mentioned, don't see ourselves reflected in this art form. So that's what I'd like to say about it. I'd love to say about it, but that's why I'm here. <laughs> Anybody else? Um, sure. I it's it's really interesting for me. I've kind of been a bit oblivious to um, the outside world in a lot of ways. I'm actually um, my two of my children have been uh, sent for autism diagnoses, and um, I'm actually going next and. Uh, so I cannot say with a degree of certainty at this point that um, that you know what they're what they're going to say at the appointment. But uh, the autism community is really in favor of self-diagnosis, anyways. So and and that you know if you, <laughs> but but yeah, all that to say, I've I've been a bit oblivious to some of the things that um, other people have noticed and. Uh, but I'm very sensitive to it. So when people come in and talk to me about the problems they've faced, either as disabled singers, neurodiverse singers, singers of color, queer singers, I just, I find it really painful. Like, just, it feels like it's terrible. Um, opera is one of the first places where I saw blackface on stage, you know, and, and for a a black person to encounter that, I mean, I almost quit because I said, well, I don't want to be involved in something where blackface is, is it's like the final frontier of blackface. Like, why is it still acceptable? Um, and I was actually in a production of Mikado way back when, and I just feel like, ugh, gross, you know? 
Um, and it's just, it's a weird, weird, weird world. And when I heard about Adrian Angelico, um, their agent or manager, I can't remember being worried that when they showed up to do a Rosencav, people would be like, oh, we don't want, we don't want a man playing Octavian because it's going to unqueer Rosencav. And I'm like, a trans person in the cast is unqueering the show. <laughs> like, what, what, what planet am I on? Like, you're going there to consume um, this like lesbian show, but then you don't want to see trans people on stage. And, you know, people boycotted Les Feluettes when it came to Montreal because they didn't want to see a like gay men on stage, um, like cavorting with each other. And I'm like, but, but you've been consuming this forever that's kind of like why you go there right to look at gay stuff but pretend you aren't so it just uh it's really just kind of nice to to be open about it and like you know that that there are companies now that you can talk to and say look you know i have i have limited mobility um can we can we try to make sure that this production um takes that into account can we make sure that audience members with limited mobility are considered because that's a problem too can we you know and and it's just maybe we haven't solved all these problems and maybe we aren't going to be able to on our own maybe we need a bunch of these kind of companies but at least at least we can have the conversation um at least we can talk about what it's like to be neurodiverse or have limited mobility and be on stage at least nobody at opera queens is going to look at my body and say you know you need to lose 40 pounds before we'll cast you as such and such because i've seen that written into singers contracts and it's just appalling because hey we're suspending disbelief and believing that you know gods are coming down to earth and like having sex and making babies with humans but we can't believe that a fat person would fall in love like that's just no you've gone too far like, what is this come on yeah yeah jumping onto that like just the suspending belief thing one of my favorite things about combating like the what people think of the opera industry which is like super uh eurocentric forward kind of the older generation super hoity-toity entitled all those very not nice compliments my favorite thing to do is um, to sing for donors and big, uh, big names because um, generally as um, a bigger plus size Asian person, but just because I am Asian, um, again, I am Korean Canadian, is that they kind of expect like a small voice because statistically and in the past, people who become classical singers uh, in the Eurocentric way are very small, thin Wow, women, right? And and then the men, they don't care because, oh, hold on, it's re-recording. Wait, oh, <laughs> and um, and they don't care about the men's bodies because the patriarchy, right? Um, but um, my favorite thing to do because I have quite a large voice and it's rounder. It's not dark per se, but it's not light, you know. And so my favorite thing to do is just watch their entire perception of what is life just flash before their eyes. Um, they don't know what to do because I don't because I'm born in Canada. I'm a second generation Korean immigrant. Um, I don't have any uh, accent when I speak Korean or when I speak English. They don't have 
trans translating accents. So seeing these um, donors, patrons, um, ticket holders, et cetera, who have maybe that more older mindset, it's just so funny to watch them just question their entire life. Do you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> and so um, one thing I really like about companies like Opera Queens, like there's a small number of companies who are, have um, like the same umbrella, um, same umbrella goal of what we want to see for the future, but not many. And um, it's, it's, uh, like Jay was saying, like, this is why, like, jumping off that point, like, you would never hear that kind of question of, like, where are you from, from, like, people will just tell you if they want you to know, or, like, if you, like, in this case of uh, Jay, I hope it's okay to share that um, Jay had twisted their ankle, or something happened to your ankle, it was really bad, We and they had to use a cane, and our director was like, yeah, no problem. You're uh, you, one of the characters uh, was a nurse. And I was like, let's just add it like a limp. You know, it was just like so easy. And I know that mobility is specifically as an issue, uh, issue, I say with quotes, is sometimes directors are like, what do I do with this? Whereas the director we have for uh, Eugene Onegin was just like, you have a cane? No problem. Now it's part of the character, you know? And I think it's that very, um, because it was not, it was not a big deal. It was not nonchalant, like, oh, whatever. But it was just really taking into account each person, like, um, whatever accommodations you needed as long, as long as there were like accommodations, not just like demands, you know, <laughs> like in the accommodations, they were always, um, well accounted for. And that's something that is very very different from the old mindset of the opera world which is like my way or the highway like we have this dress from 1926 and we want you to fit those measurements and if you don't you don't if you don't you're fired and that's completely unrealistic some places are still using blackface some places are still using yellow face um and on the account of like not being okay with um different people or different fox or different pairings like um, something that I wanted to mention was that, like, I, especially with this Onegin production we just did, um, it just felt, uh, like Mike had brought up, it just felt so normal, you know, like, I, I played Lensky, which is traditionally a tenor role, I didn't change a single note, I just sang in the soprano octave, Olga remained the same, you know, and so we were love interests, and, um, you know, because there's plenty of lesbians in the world, right? <laughs> And so why not see a lesbian couple have just um, a good old love-hate mental breakdown on stage, just like every, every other couple that's out there, you know? And so I think the what Mike had mentioned, like the normalcy of, of uh, LGBT couples, people who of differing uh, pronouns and identities and abilities, just normalizing all of it is one of the really cool things that is... Uh, appearing now and that's and opera queens is one of those people is like hey here it is and so it's um i think that's uh that's what gets people upset on a larger scale but we all have to start somewhere i just want to give a shout out actually to lakeshore light opera in montreal because um i walked in to audition with my cane and um they're a very traditional red book gilbert and sullivan company and the uh, stage manager immediately said, if you cannot wear the character shoes, if you need the cane, if we have to change the dance numbers, you let us know. And so I'm doing a little better. I have a brace and I'm trying my best, but it is so comforting to know 
that they like my voice and they like my acting and they will change whatever they have to change and they will dress up a cane for me in period style if need be. So um, I just, I do want the world to know that, you know, some mainstream companies and some traditional companies are doing what they can to um, accommodate people and to even diversify the cast. Um, the stage manager told me that she's been in the company since the 80s and she's she, she's seen, pardon me, a huge shift in just the the acceptance of, you know, diverse people of, of all types, you know, to being let like welcomed into the company and cast in main roles. So I'm really happy. And we actually have an Asian tenor as one of the romantic leads in the show. So hooray! And I'm playing the Duchess. So it's a pretty diverse cast with with all kinds of all kinds of people and all kinds of things going on. And I have, I have to mention as well to you know speaking of uh, Jay's iconic nurse uh, with Kane, it really was the on that Friday night of our opening night that really did steal the show. Uh, people really loved your character, and I mean you're an incredible actor, and that's something that we know from all of our productions. But that one really showcased it, and it wasn't the humor of the Kane; it was just the way you used it, the way you physicalized it, the way it was an extension of yourself. And at the same time, um, I really feel like what I've noticed in that circumstance and other times is when we really actually free people and allow them to be themselves in their totality, it allows them to reach an artistic level that is so much deeper and farther than if we set limits and we say, you can't do this, you can't do that, you are you know, too light, too heavy, whether it's vocally, physically, and or you're too gay, you're too brown, you're too, you know, whatever it is, you know, that those all clamp down on us, especially as singers who use a physical instrument. And when we free ourselves and free each other to be ourselves as who we are, uh, I've really seen, it's really astonishing what we we can witness. Because I, I, you know, Jay's work and everyone else's work, I, I admire, but seeing that in action, seeing how that freedom can be so exciting and invigorating. That's that's why we do what we do. And speaking of that moment, it was just something that I really firsthand witnessed. And it was like, well, that's that's what we do. We're we're always so pleasantly surprised. And hopefully, that is a message to spaces that are doing that work and spaces that aren't doing the work to either continue or start to be more inclusive. Because imagine all the incredible art that can be created when we free ourselves, free each other. You know, whatever it may be, whatever. Yeah, and there was a lot of uh, patience extended towards me from everybody in the cast because I flew in um, the day rehearsal started. And so I missed the first day and I was coming from a different time zone and I had been in like three or four different places within a one month period and uh, had re-injured this, this chronic problem with my ankle. So I was in really bad physical shape. And when I arrived the first day that I was singing, I like, it was like I had never seen the score. I don't know what happened. It was just, I was, it was too much um, to come in, in that much pain, um, having traveled and, and sing. And I just, and everybody was nice about it. Nobody yelled at me. I didn't get fired. They waited to see what I would do in the next couple of days. And sure enough, everything was fine. And I was completely off book, but it, if they had judged me by that first day, instead of just having a little bit of grace and a little bit of patience, um, 
and a little bit of understanding that I was like in tremendous stress because I had this ankle and this cane I didn't know how to use and I was coping with all of that. Um, it's amazing what what people can do also when you approach them with compassion instead of um, like threats, which I think we've all seen or faced ourselves in opera school or out in the world. And it's just, it's it doesn't help. It doesn't make people better. You know, compassion makes people better. Compassion makes people better. Too true. You know, I think the interesting thing, and we, I mean, we, we preach to the choir, I'm sure, but we all work in this world of uh, representing the human experience through some sort of art form, be it opera, as like a highly elevated, really um, heightened version of that, but, but like all forms of like art and music making. And it's always been so um, frustrating and, and uh, funny to me that we, as people who do this experience, who talk about human lives, uh, are so rigid about like the people who are telling these stories. They're so rigid about the people who are walking in to portray that uh, on stage. And so it's so refreshing to hear uh, when anybody has this experience, whether it's walking into Lakeshore and the person says, yes, we can, we can move with that, we can adapt with that, or uh, you know, a character is not rigid. The experience of the character is not defined by um, uh, the gender or sexuality or or where you may or may not uh, hold like a traditional cultural uh, background to. Like, we can move that. We can have that same narrative happen genuinely and honestly and, and bring that forward through uh, any number of voices that, that can possibly happen and it's it's just so wonderful to hear uh opera queens doing doing this work and so i think we should listen to something first uh before we continue talking um so maybe we'll start with some carmen because why not let's listen to some carmen and so uh you had sent over a bien from carmen the final duet and so without further ado here is our final duet Oh 
tell me more about uh, the production process for Opera Queens. Uh, because it's such a um, maybe different way of approaching uh, opera, although, uh, Jay, I, I firmly, I love the, the line, I will uh, completely butcher what you said, but uh, you go to opera to to encounter something gay without uh, knowing or saying <laughs> that it is, that we all have been going to opera for generations to, to have a little uh, gay festivity and then whether or not we actually want to admit that is a, is a different conversation. But uh, I, I'm assuming your your production process is uh, maybe a little different from the maybe older, more tightly wound opera company. Can you tell me about uh, how you approach things? Sure, I can just give a little perspective from the kind of the bird's eye view um, and I think I always realized I had a little bit more of this kind of producer mindset because it really is a different kind of way of seeing the world. And I think it maybe comes from my perspective starting out as a pianist and not starting out as a singer because even the nature you uh, of what a pianist does is dealing with multiple lines, uh, you know, for example, box polyphony and you're dealing with multiple voices. And um, I think I've just always been very eclectic that way and very polymathic. And so uh, it's been a really great outlet for me to be able to channel that energy and to put that kind of perspective into something where, you know, we paint on a bigger canvas. I don't conduct, but I guess it's as close as I might get to it, where you're working outside of yourself and you're picturing something that starts bigger uh, than ourselves. And of course, um, one of the, as, as exhausting and demanding as it does because we have been very fortunate with grants that do account for a lot of the admin work that i do a lot of it i i end up putting a lot of my own energy and time into into things um so as demanding that it, that is one of the great privileges that i also get to think what do i want to do what are the roles that i want to sing so it often starts there but i also think you know where what can we find that can tell a story where it's not just me and not just my body and my voice and um so it often starts with kind of uh, when we started very early on, we had a smaller group and we thought, what do we all want to sing? And I kind of fabricated productions that kind of incorporated those narratives. So the Carmen, for example, came from from a production called Latin Night that I'm very excited will say will finally premiere in 2023. It's the first time I'm actually able to say I have a proposed release date of June 12, 2023. Uh, it's actually the anniversary. I haven't told anyone yet, even none of you, Jay, for example, who's in that show, um, but it's the anniversary of the Pulse tragedy in Orlando. And this production actually came by because of course we were very interested in Carmen and but also there was a member of our of our cast who comes from a latinx background who suggested this composer that wrote this opera about someone losing a, a loved one in the pulse uh, tragedy and uh, just thinking of the violence that carmen has in this show too and uh for me is a role that kind of really brought me to drag actually uh the opera carmen and the role of carmen you know, and it's so chilling kind of what I've been watching the footage back loads of times, you know, and <laughs> tweaking it and working with our production crew, you know, to kind of finalize everything. And, you know, watching it's very chilling because I see myself very much as a trans woman and seeing a trans woman be a victim of violence. Uh, we think of all those queer trans people that are um, that 
that have violence acted against them. So we we paired these two works were really the center of that production to really highlight this the community of the story that needed to be told and um, to kind of really draw parallels between both the past and the present. And something I really love to do is uh, at Upper Queens is to reinvent our canon works, but also new works. So how can we knit them together? Because I think often we think, oh, okay, there's the standard canon works, there's the new works, and they have their own places. They may coexist in a season, but you know, the the canon works will be really big and splashy. We'll devote more money to them, and they'll be our main stage. Then we'll take that money, we'll fund these little like new works because we have to because they're whatever. But um, the whole thing is that all of these stories are stories that deserve to be told. And why can they not coexist? Because we all live in this time together but we have all this wealth rubbed to our, so how can they coexist? So this was uh, how our Carmen came together. And we've also done Carmen in different contexts, mixed and matched repertoire. Uh, oftentimes we kind of do a cabaret format where we put repertoire together that kind of coexists well, or tells a certain narrative arc. Um, and Yegin was the first time we've done a show end to end, although with twists as well too. And so often it comes from finding stories that we feel haven't been told or haven't been told well haven't been seen in a certain way and um finding connections between the past and the present and finding opportunities where the most of us possible can be part of it you know so i might sing carmen but for example in the these wings were meant to, are meant to fly which is the the new work we paired it with i was part of the text message chorus and uh, and then vice versa, there were people that had a lead role elsewhere, and then another piece were uh, in a secondary role or in a chorus role elsewhere. And, you know, trying to make it a way where everyone can have a moment to shine, especially as a soloist, we're so used to having ourselves, you know, uh, subjugated in some way. So it's nice to be able to have a more soloist-centric approach um, and at least also still have ensemble work where we can have some singing together and some bigger scenes, but really focusing on uh, stories and sharing that kind of spotlight. And for me, I've enjoyed a lot of success and interest in my drag work, but I kind of want to like take that and then turn it and then shine it on other folks. And it's just been so exciting seeing everyone else kind of really take that limelight and see what they do with it. And hopefully in turn, use that and shine that on other places. Um, so that's kind of my perspective uh, and wearing all the hats, you know, performing and producing it. And it's a lot, but I'm a lot too. And that's why I'm doing it. And it's been great because now as we've been moving forward, we've been able to outsource. And for example, there has been really great on the administrative side to really um, get more involved in that capacity. And it's really important uh, to have a really strong behind the scenes team that is not always so appreciated, but really vital to everything you see on screen on stage. Fantastic. I mean, I think, um, I, I mean, I'm just jealous that I, well, not jealous, I, I can't wait to see a production sometime right now. I'm just excited to uh, hopefully be in a, a city and, and see uh, see you all work. This is great. Um, we should listen to another thing. And uh, so maybe we will go to, uh, maybe, maybe you can uh, tell us about uh, Lady of Ladies a bit before we have a listen. Maybe, Christina, you want to tell us about Lady of Ladies? You seem very, 
Very excited. I think that Jay should tell us because it's their work. I was just so happy to do it. I'm just excited. <laughs> I think Jay should talk about it. Uh, sure. Um, so Mike, um, <laughs> had a ton of faith in me and said, Hey, you want to write something for opera Queens? And I was like, yeah, yeah, of course I do. But didn't think that, um, that, you know, it was actually, but because I don't, it took me a while to, to, to use the word composer and feel comfortable saying that I still, I still don't know if I do because I have these friends who are they have PhDs in composition and they're amazing. And I love to work with sound. Um, and I did a lot of sort of sound crafting in audio school, but um, the word composer kind of scares me anyways. But um, I had started writing this opera about Claude Cain and Marcel Moore, who were non-binary surrealist artists. And I'm still, you know, I kind of shelved that, but I, I do want to finish it. And, um, and then I did this other thing for Rise Opera with Eldad, which ended up getting more attention than I expected. So um, Mike asked me to write something Cleopatra themed, and I found this really cool E.E. E. Cummings poem and decided to use that as my starting point. So the poetry in this particular chunk is by E.E. E. Cummings from a poem called Cleopatra Built. And um, I've split up the text between the women in Cleopatra's life, uh, rather than kind of focusing on Antony or um, Caesar, because, you know, every opera about Cleopatra and every discussion about Cleopatra focuses on Antony or Caesar. So that's, that's the difference with our, our um, Cleopatra that was commissioned. And we've got Thera and Christina and Mike and, um, who else is singing in it? Oh, I'm so sorry. It's just because Corinne's not here today. Corinne. Oh, too many C so names. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> sorry, Corinne. Well, let's have Thank a listen.
so as we as we kind of wrap up, I am uh, always curious where where organizations are going next. And so uh, maybe I mean I I my partner always says don't mention COVID, but uh, you know we have to. In this period where we are now kind of uh, adapting and moving forward and seeing what we are able to do and all that kind of thing, um, given that you started in in 2020, uh, kind of at the worst possible time to start a performance uh based organization uh what are you hoping to do now what i mean in, in montreal and toronto things are, are pretty uh decent for performance at the moment um what are, what are your next productions what's what's on the, the slate so i'll talk a little bit about what's kind of coming up and uh because we have such a wealth of creativity we have no shortage of ideas and which is great so and i'm a long-term planner so i kind of have like 2025 possibly to six seven mapped out and there's still more ideas that pass that we have decades of you know work that we can do so we really hope to you know go the distance because i think there's so many exciting stories for us to tell but also hopefully others will be telling that those stories too, and it goes beyond us. But it's interesting you mentioned that because it seems weird as a performing arts company to start in the pandemic, but it was kind of great too because we had to be creative and adaptable and find a way to make things work in the worst possible times. So it's almost like now that we have that, we uh, everything else will be a um, piece of cake. It of course isn't. But it's kind of great, too, because then we're really mindful of health and safety moving forward and cancellations. So we always try to double cast productions with a cover as well, if possible. And uh, it, it our Nagin production was our biggest production yet, probably will be for a while this past summer. And we really tapped into that system because in some cases we had to look into our plan B, C, and even if find a D because all of them were, um, were challenged. Uh, so that's something that uh, has really impacted kind of the way we work in a way that hopefully plans for, for you know, for illness to happen. And now as we're returning and with a lot of mass mandates not present, there's also just regular illnesses and flus that are also disrupting people. So that's one consideration in terms of our live work. At the same time, we started doing a lot of digital work. One of our big digital productions, our first big grant from Canada Council, uh, which was a $50,000 Digital Now grant, um, ended up being allowing us to do two digital productions. And we filmed that in summer 2021. And I kid you not, I've been working on it every month since. It's finally, we'll be releasing Drama Queens in February, uh, which will be our uh, release date I planned of February 23rd, 2023. Easy to remember, but also Handel's birthday, who features in the show. As I mentioned, our Latinite production, uh, June 12th of 2023 in Memoriam of Pulse. And um, so those will finally actually see the light of day because we've done it, we've been working on it, and uh, we're excited to share that. But a real emphasis on digital work that can access people internationally, not just in Toronto and Montreal, but really valuing our audiences all over the place because especially so much with um, queer, trans people, gay people, you know, not everyone's living openly or able to where they are. And so it's really important for us to be able to reach people in terms of accessibility and to have a place where they can uh, indulge in their own time, in their own space. Because when you go to a show, 
you out yourself, you know, in, in a lot of ways or as a performer as well, too. And we want to continue to have that kind of space. And there are places like in China where there's still, you know, zero COVID lockdowns. And even if people are pretending COVID is done and COVID is fine, we're all, it hasn't gone away. And I think a lot of companies are really quick to return in person, which is great. And we love that. But there is such value in online digital work and tremendous. It's actually a lot more difficult in a lot of respects. And uh, I have such a huge respect for people in film and TV because it, it is so demanding. So we're going to continue that work where we can still reach our online audiences. Our Tanya Secret show that we're recording, uh, I'm working on for digital release so that we can have that also air and serve people that are part of our online following. Um, and uh, we have a grant in the bank from uh, Canada Council again for a public outreach grant, which, as Jay was mentioning, is for our Night of a Thousand Cleopatras production. So this will feature Jay's opera Cleopatra Built, in which will be completed by by then in whatever form it takes, because we have some scenes so far and uh, we're, it's still a work in process and it will be accompanied in a traditional way by Canon Works kind of knit together where we have the barber, Handel, Massenet, uh, some well-known versions of Cleopatra, some lesser-known versions kind of um, existing side by side. And that's something we're really excited about. Uh, in 2024, we're planning for a Sodom and Gomorrah show, which will tackle religion, which is a big topic for the gays and for just really all of us, people of color too. And uh, that will be spicy and uh, something I've been kind of waiting to do because that's definitely kind of loaded. Um, and then uh, I mean, for the 25 season, um, I have been working on a, a book and an opera about my life. Uh, called Memoirs of Agasian. So that will that's something that's still in a very early process. But again, speaking earlier before as, you know, where are my stories? Well, we are going to create them. So that will be something that will be um, very personal project to me, but will also reflect a lot of the stories and the people that are part of Opera Queens. And we hope the world that will see themselves reflected. So there's lots of things happening and there are a lot of things that have happened. And we have a lot of archival uh, stuff already out on YouTube and our social media. But um, yeah, stay tuned. We want to continue to be there in person, but also digitally and just um, it hopefully inspire people also to go out and do their thing as well, too. But uh, definitely lots to share um, coming up, whether you're in our city or if you're if you're not, there's a way to get connected and to be part of our work. I mean, the two things I love about, I mean, many things I love about that, but the two main things that I love about it, uh, I am uh, such a believer in, uh, like, canon repertoire, and uh, there's this rallying cry that people seem to, to have decided on that if we're doing new uh, repertoire, new stories, new things, that for some reason it means we are axing all of the other stuff, and I don't know where that comes from, but... Um, we can do both. Uh, that's just more opera. That's just more performance. And I think that's that's phenomenal, you know? Uh, so I love that Opera Queens is doing uh, these blended uh, new commission, absolutely bringing new voices uh, and also the old productions in a new and fun and interesting and beautiful way. Uh, the other thing that I really uh, love about what you're talking about, uh, the digital creation, is that I think for for some of us who uh you know live and breathe queer performance and live and breathe being a queer person uh 
without uh, very much masking involved, I, I absolutely take for granted that I can go to whatever performances I, my little gay self wants to go to uh, and not think about it. Um, and it is super important to have a resource for people um, who are not in that position to, to go uh, and see queer performance in, in all of its uh, different forms in the way that they are able to consume it. And so it's nice to hear uh, that that's a consideration that you're thinking of, that there's a, a method for people to engage with your work that doesn't necessarily include outing them or that they can do it at their own comfort level or space or wherever they're able to meet that production um, and how important it is for them to be able to meet that production in the space that they're able to. Um, and so that's that's phenomenal to hear. I'm, I'm really quite happy. Um, Everybody can uh, find you at, I believe, your website's just operqueens.ca. Am I correct? You bet. It, the key is to find something easy and memorable. So <laughs> I'm sorry sure. it wasn't taken. I mean, I was really adamant that it was .ca to represent the Canadian side. Um, but uh, I'm really just thrilled that it wasn't taken. I have to say, though, on Facebook, we are Opera Queens with a Z. I'm, I'm going on that link because it's taken but it's not a public page and i've been monitoring if it ever comes with an s up i am grabbing it um so that's a little bit of an easter egg for those that are really uh, keen but uh yeah upperqueens.ca or at upperqueens is our hand Did I just fantastic about canon repertoire because that was a big yeah. thing that came up and i this is something that i i talk about whenever i can because i think it's really important but um Don Giovanni, for example, Carmen, which we've talked about, these shows um, have a ton of violence in them and highlight things like domestic violence, rape. Um, and some people have said, well, we shouldn't perform those those shows because um, it's just it's just terrible what happens in them. But I mean, when we look at what has happened recently with all the like Me Too stuff in Hollywood, I think that Don Giovanni is a really relevant show. It doesn't matter that it was composed in, you know, the 1700s. It doesn't matter. The, these things are still happening to people. So my my big thing is like, yeah, let's do these shows, but let's let's point out the things in them that are terrible and that are still happening to people. Let's not just all come out of the theater Humming, you know, finger del vino, do, 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 do. That was great. What a fun show. Like, let's say, yes, there's some great music in there, but also um, this highlights how powerful, charismatic men who could get any woman they want also still rape women when women say no. So it's like, it's, and people are baffled by this, right? Like, how could that powerful man who had a beautiful wife? Why would he would never rape someone? He has a beautiful wife. Well, yes, he would. And we know he would. And we see this all the time. And this is exactly what happens in Don Giovanni. So why are we not using these operas to show these things? And and you know, like like Mike said earlier, the idea of Carmen just in its in its historical version already highlights um spousal abuse. But the idea of um also showing the murder of a trans woman on stage for me was like a huge thing and it was very very hard for me to play that role 
Um, my wife is trans and I had a lot of emotions, you know, but I just felt really, really, really strongly that we, that it was an important thing to show. And this is the first time we're actually like articulating these things, um, publicly, but, um, but I just, I think it's amazing. It's amazing to be around people who let me also bring my kind of academic and um, activisty <laughs> thoughts into the space because, um, you know, if I went off to a mainstream opera company and was like, excuse me, but can we talk about um, rape now? Because Don Giovanni and they would just be like, be quiet, you're wasting company time. So so this is it's just really nice it's a really nice way to do canon rep i think there's i go ahead mike no worries no worries um you go first i just wanted to make sure that uh, there has been having some trouble so um uh, after your point just wanted to pass it out of there to just say as much as possible about anything that they have experienced or felt because um uh there's been like a lag uh, so just wanted to make sure that she had some time. Yeah, Thera, any any thoughts on that? Well, I don't really know what the question was because <laughs> I haven't been here for so long. I'm so sorry. My internet, I mean, I'm back in my apartment. I have proper internet. There's no one making weird noises on the treadmills anymore. Um, I, but, I mean, this is kind of a throwback, but uh, the question I think that you might have been talking about before was sort of what the the um, process is for sort of making an opera show. Um, and uh, I Mike sort of alluded to the admin side of it. And um, from uh, when we were doing Onegin, that was sort of our first, if I'm if I'm correct, our first like fully staged full production. And um, we put out an audition um, form for it. And I was sort of in charge of helping out with responses to people who auditioned, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the form itself was so interesting and so well constructed, I think. So kudos to you, Mike, for putting that together because um, not only was it sort of what is your musical experience, like all of the, the standard questions of like, here's what we would like you to submit for a video or for a sound recording, but it was also sort of like, what are your accessibility needs? Which I think companies are starting to ask, um, but often it's just kind of like phrases more of uh, anything else we need to know. And anytime that's on an application form, I'm like, I don't know what that means. Like, thank you for reading my application, I guess. Like, is that what you wanted to hear? Um, but it was questions like, you know, very specific questions about accessibility, about what your other strengths and skills and interests are. Um, about what you wanted to be involved with, whether it was from a singing perspective and or any other sort of um, production perspective, whether it be social media or um, uh, arts and bin or uh, playing another instrument or what have you. So it was a really well-rounded application form that was addressing all of these things and also addressing like, um, are you, do you identify as LGBTQ plus or do you identify as uh, BIPOC or, or anything on that sort of demographic as well and it wasn't phrased in like a oh like token diversity way <laughs> it was um it was a, a, an application form that i had never really seen before and i think the the process of filling out that form and really sharing you as a whole person on an application is something that is very new and shouldn't be new but um is a really really good way of going about doing that so i apologize if i'm sort of jumping back to a previous question but i wasn't here i wouldn't know uh 
<laughs> but it seems like things are working a lot better technologically on my end. So that's that's my little spiel of what I wanted to say when my internet was not like. They are working quite well. And, uh, and even though it's a little bit of a throwback, it's all connected. This is all part of the same conversation. And so I really appreciate um, your thoughts on that. And it's, uh, it again, it just speaks to uh, that we are we are able to and and provide uh, nice models of uh, continuing classical performance uh, through new lenses. And Opera Queens provides a really good um, framework for how to do this, for how to do canon repertoire, for how to commission new things, for how to include people um, in in these spaces that are so very uh, often excluded and if they are in the space it's often a very violent experience for many people and so it's uh it's nice to hear from everybody uh that this is what you are able to do that this exists that we are we are able to do this work um thoughtfully and and inclusive of people and uh it's been very very nice to talk with everybody uh mike christina thera and jay thank you so much uh, for joining us here on Classical Queer Podcast. Uh, we're going to leave you, uh, dear listeners, with a couple more tracks from Opera Queens. Uh, but please go find them. If you are in uh, Eastern Central Canada, uh, if you're in Montreal, Toronto, please go see productions uh, and listen to the recordings because as we were talking about, uh, they exist for people who are not uh, in those physical spaces as well. And so... One more time, thank you, everybody. So that's all for this episode. You've been listening to the Classical Queer Podcast, and Jake and I look forward to being with you next month. The incidental music is courtesy of Jared Miller, and the show was produced by Samantha Jane.